you are here together with us. We are going currently through the book of Romans. We'll be actually ending our series in the book of Romans by the end of this year, right before Christmas. And then we'll be beginning another series in January, a first or second week or so in January on the book of Nehemiah. But for now, we are finishing off with uh, the last couple chapters of Romans. So if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15... We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 together. And something we do, not all the time, but we do as a regular practice, is we want to draw attention to the fact that God's word is inerrant. His word is infallible, and that we worship God for his word. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. If you're able to stand, if you're not, feel no obligation to do so. But all of us, if you could please stand together for the reading of God's word. We who are strong have an obligation... To bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction That through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. This is God's word. Father, thank you that we have assurance that you have welcomed us. God, you've welcomed us not because of anything we've ever done or could do. Lord, you've welcomed us not because of how good-looking or how strong we were or what our performance was like. And God, you've welcomed us because of your Son. Because your Son has earned perfect righteousness in our place so that we can now have the righteousness of Christ. You've welcomed us because you've removed all of our sins. There's no barriers between us and you anymore. So God, we come to you this morning grateful for your welcome. God, grateful that you accept us, Lord. And so now, Lord, I pray that we would worship you with our lives in response. We would worship you in response to all of your mercies to us for your goodness to us. I pray, Father, that you would... Be with me as I speak right now, that you would give me the words to say, that you would, Lord, cut out those words that I've planned that are not of you, Lord. And I pray pray as well that for everyone here, you would give everyone, all of us, the ability to hear from you. Would you speak to our hearts and minds? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us, Lord? Would you turn us to you? May we live for you more as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I recently read an article. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a joke. I I had to look it up on other sites. I had to look it up at other news sources. I thought it was a joke. I thought there was no way people could believe it. But there was 10 days ago a conference in Raleigh, North Carolina for flat earthers. And, And I kid you not, it's a real thing. It was the first ever 2017 flat earth conference held in Raleigh. I don't know if it's the first ever is really genuine because I I think, you know, a long time ago they had that idea. 
but it features some of the big names in, in round earth denial. I didn't know there were big names in round earth denial, but I, I wanted to enlighten you too. So I found out there are big names apparently in round earth denial. Among the speakers were Daryl Marble. You recognize that name, right? <laughs> he once took a level on a plane to prove that the earth's curve doesn't exist. Mark Sargent, the creator of Flat Earth Clues YouTube series, who believes all of life is enclosed in a Truman Show-like dome structure. This is for real. People believe this. Flat Earthers believe the Earth is not a globe but a flat plane. Beliefs on how the true globe is laid out vary, but many personalities push the conspiracy theory say the planet's a disk. This is actually one representation of what they believe. It's a disk, and it's surrounded by ice all around, 12 feet tall, and that... You know, I, I just heard this morning, even more enlightenment, that, you know, apparently, um, I think the one world government is patrolling this ice wall to make sure no one sees the truth. Recently, there was a rapper, B.O.B., and he tried to crowdfund a million dollars via GoFundMe to launch a satellite to see if he could detect for himself the fact that there's no curvature over the earth. They froze the account, but now they've opened it back up, and they've raised $6,842, very precise number so far. And there is a group of folks who still believe that the earth is flat. They live life that way. And it sounds absurd, right? At least it should sound absurd. It is pretty absurd. It's pretty absurd that you would be living thinking, okay, um, you know, I, I was talking to Steve Cliff this morning. He's our student intern, and he said, you know, I've, I've flown halfway around the world, you know, both ways. And, you know, we've, we've seen evidence of that. Ships have sailed all around the globe. Planes have flown around the globe. Astronauts have gone up into space. There's been photographs from that. But apparently all those things are doctored. And so it seems absurd to believe that the earth will be flat. And it seems a little silly to be living that way, doesn't it? If you were actually living in that way today, it would seem a little silly. But you know what? As Christians, we can live that way today in our own way. We can live... As if Galileo was wrong, and the earth doesn't really revolve around the sun. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, we can live as if we are at the center of the universe. And it's just as absurd as believing the earth is flat. We can live as if we were the most important people on the planet, and that life revolves around us. But you know what? That's where I live. That's where most of us live day by day. We live in this absurd plane Believing that everything revolves around us and that we are the most important person, not only in the room, but in life. You ever live that way? You ever live as totally self-aware, totally aware of you, your needs, your feelings, your desires, your wants. And then you're aware of every interaction with people based on how it affects you. When we do that, we kind of live absurd lives. This constant awareness of ourselves. If a teacher notices another student who answers a question in class, for those who are students still, you can maybe think, well, I wonder, will they think less of me? Will they, will they think less of me? Will I, will I get as much attention from the teacher now? Because Betty is really smart and she always raises her hand in class and the teacher really seems to like her or she always gets the student of the month. Or you can feel that way when someone else gets recognition at work. And you can be worried, instead of being happy for them and the recognition that they get, you can instead think, okay, wait a minute, how is this going to affect my advancement, my performance, my promotions, my rewards, my salary? Um, Or maybe you're a mom and you are at home with kids and then some other mom gets noticed for how great she is and, and you think, 
ooh. You know, wait a minute. People won't see how great I am. Because I'm sacrificing all the time. Or maybe there's some other area for you where you are more concerned about success or money or getting something you think you need or you want. We try to make up for our failures. You ever do that? You try to make up for your failures? Man, I'm, I live that way all the time, unfortunately. We try to, to get better to make ourselves feel better. You know, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to get better so that I can feel better about myself. And what we've done in those moments is we've lost sight of the fact that we don't have to live for ourselves anymore because Jesus lived for us and died for us. The earth's not flat. It doesn't revolve around you and me. What if I told you that you don't have to be bound up by living for yourself anymore? What if, what if I told you you don't have to be consumed with thinking about yourself all the time and what you want? What if I told you you don't have to think about yourself so much because someone else is always thinking about you, always caring for you, always wants what is best for you? What if I told you you don't have to strive and struggle for financial freedom because you have all the freedom you could ever want, that you have an inheritance coming to you that is kept for you that will never lessen and that you will never run out of? What if I told you you don't have to worry about what people thought about you ever again? Ever. You don't have to worry about what people think about you ever again. What if I told you that you are free from worrying about your failures and your weaknesses because somebody else has already taken all your weaknesses and all your failures. You see, that's, that's the, that is the news we have. The Apostle Paul has been laying out for us all throughout the book of Romans. It's been a glorious book. The, the great truths that we don't have to earn favor before God. In fact, we never could earn favor before God. And Jesus has, has lived in such a way that he's earned all the favor before God that we ever could want So we don't have to worry about what people think about us because God now thinks of us as he thinks about Jesus. That's freeing. It makes you not have to live as if the world revolves around you. It's freeing to know that we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us that will never fade and it's secured by the Son of God who earned the right to that inheritance and now has given that inheritance to us. We've been set free in Christ. We've been made right with God Because the atoning sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And then in Romans 8 it says that nothing can separate us from his love. Why? Because he has made us one with God. He's broken down the wall of separation between us and God. He's removed the wrath of God from us. He's he's given us all the credit that he earned. And now nothing will separate us from his love. And then Romans 8 tells us that not only that, if God is for us, no one can be against us. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. Why? Because God accepts you completely. He's for you. You don't have to live bound that way. He's shown us mercy after mercy. If he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us every good thing that we need, is what Romans tells us, right? We've been given mercy after mercy, grace upon grace, endless mercies. And those endless mercies that God has given to us, God's endless grace and his righteousness that he's given to us in Christ Jesus, it it results in something. It results in setting us free so we no longer have to live like we're flat earthers with the earth revolving around us. That we can see, you know what? I can be set free from that bondage and that slavery. I can, I can be set free to live for something bigger than myself, for someone bigger than myself. I can be set free to live for God now. 
And ever since Romans chapter 12, Paul has been talking about that. If you really get the effects of the gospel, if you really get the good news, and and this morning, I don't want you to be kind of ho-hum about it. If you understand that God completely accepts you in Christ Jesus, that should make you dance. You don't have to worry about what anybody here thinks about you. Look around the room for a second. Look around the room. Just one second. Just look around. Like, turn your heads for real. Look around the room. You don't have to care about what anybody around the room thinks about you. Even just now when you're worried, like, hey, what will people think? Is everybody else turning their head around it, right? I mean, like, everybody thought that. Are people really doing that? Okay, I guess I won't feel weird. We have been set free by the mercies of God. And God's mercies, they compel us. They compel us to say, you know what? I, I don't have to live that way anymore. I don't have to be concerned with, with wondering, will I be successful? Because in Christ Jesus, no matter what, um, I don't care if I die penniless in this life or if I die having achieved nothing the world thinks is success because you know what? I've achieved everything possible. I've gotten the favor of God in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate definition of success is receiving the commendation of God that will God on the last day will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. That's success. Financial freedom is knowing that, you know what? If I don't have a penny in my pocket, I know that in the next life, I will never have want. His endless riches. And so ever since chapter 12, Paul's been laying out what does it look like to live lives of worship, lives that are worshiping God by being righteous in response to the fact that we already have his righteousness. And now in chapter 16 here, he's continuing that theme. He says, what does it look like to live a life in response to the mercies of God? What does it live to look like to live a life that's set free? And he kind of tells us something that almost seems contradictory. He says, you know, being set free, living a life in worship to God, and that's living in response to his worship. It actually, being set free means we have some obligations. But it means that we're able to live out those things. Now we actually can be set free to live out the things that God's calling us to. And the main point we'll see in this passage is that our obligation under Christ now, now that we're living under Christ, now we're living under his banner, his rule, his reign, his authority, now that we're defined by him, our obligation under Christ, it's to live other-centered lives. Not me-centered lives. It's to live other-centered lives. And then he gives us a great and glorious aspiration for that. It's, It's to glorify God. If If we have one glorious aspiration in life, it's to live for God in response to God, out of worship to God. We're now in Christ Jesus, set free to live like him. And if we are to live like him, if we understand the good news of the gospel that Paul's been laying out all throughout Romans, it sets us free to now live for the good of others like Jesus did and to be able to actually freely glorify God like Jesus did. By giving of himself. And the very first thing that we see, it's almost startling for us. Because you think, wait a minute, Matt, you're talking about freedom. The gospel is about freedom in Christ. But So how can freedom make us obligated? And that's the first thing we see, is that we have this strong obligation. Paul uses some strong language here. Paul uses some very decisive language. He says, we who are, look down at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation. We have an obligation we owe something. He's been talking about owe no man anything but love. This is part of our obligation of love, our owing of love, our debt of love. We, we have an obligation here. 
And it's a strong obligation. That's a play on words on purpose. It's a strong obligation. An obligation for those who are strong. Strong are those who are not bound up by trying to keep the law or an external set of guidelines. But it seems contradictory. He says, we who are strong have an obligation. We aren't obliged to keep the law, to live in a certain way to please God, but we do have an obligation of love. How are you living? Are you living as if you have an obligation? The obligation of love is what constrains us. If we are, and we're obliged, it says, to bear with the failings of the weak. What he's saying is that if you think you are strong in an area... It's not optional to have patience, but you're commanded to bear with the failings of the weak. That's not easy, is it? It's not bearing with in the sense that, you know, okay, I'm going to endure this person's weakness. This is a bearing, the picture of Jesus, who bore our weakness, our infirmities on himself on the cross. He carried our infirmities. He carried our weaknesses. We like to go hiking as a family, and we got to go hiking a couple weeks ago, up at a pinnacle just above Kings Mountain. I can't remember the name of the peak right now, but we got to go hiking there a few weeks ago. And it's only about two and a quarter miles on the way up the hike. It's not that aggressive. But the last, the last half mile, last three quarters of a mile is pretty darn steep. And it's like you're doing steps for the last three quarters of a mile. Well, I've got six kids. My oldest is taller than me, so he has no problems with that. My youngest, though, Eva, she just turned four, I think the week before we went on the hike. And her legs are like this tall. They don't, they're not even as long as my shins. And, and, and her stride is about a quarter of what my stride is. And so by the time we get up two-thirds of the way up the hike, she's already done four times more than I have. She's taken four times as many steps. And she's a trooper. She's doing great. But then we hit these rocks, and it gets a little hard. And so I, we, we all do our own part, right? We all carry different things on the hike. We, the stronger ones on the hike, so Noah and I and then Julie and Abby, we, we all carry the things that those who don't have as much strength can't. We carry the water. We carry an extra set of clothes in case it gets cold up top or whatever. We carry food. We carry whatever we need for that day because we know that we're stronger, so we're able to endure more. We're able to carry more, and so it only makes sense. But about two-thirds of the way up, typically I'm prepared for the fact I know that little Eva, who it's not that aggressive, but you know what, if, if I'm honest, it would have been just enough for me to hike up and back. Little Eva, she gets tired, and her legs get weak, and she can't walk anymore, and so I'm prepared for that, and so I have a backpack carrier. It looks a little funny, but it's made for toddlers. It's made to hold like 60 pounds, and so I pop her in there, and I carry her up the rest of the way. Because I'm stronger, and the only way for her to get up there is if I carry her in her weakness. She's not deficient, she's just weaker. Her muscles fail, so I bear with her weakness. When her legs begin to fail, by carrying her on my back in a carrier. The bearing with in this verse is that kind of bearing with. The bearing with in this verse, is, is, it's a loving bearing with. It's, it's we bear with each other because we're part of the same family and we want to take each other. We want to go to the same vistas. We want to see the same greatness of God. We want, to, we want to encounter the greatness of God. We want to see what God has for us on the horizon. We want to all go there together and we, we go there together. We're in this together. We're a part of the family. You know, it's not just like a family, by the way. You know, when you looked around earlier, 
All the people you looked around at are your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. They are your family. We're not just like a family, we are a family. And so just as much as me with my physical family, we're going up the mountain, uh, I, I needed to carry Eva. We need to carry each other. Those who are strong need to carry those who are weak. And it's a loving, not begrudging. I, I wasn't angry that I had to carry her. I actually, I assumed I might have to. I wasn't offering until she needed it, but when she didn't need it, I picked her up and I put her in the back. I anticipated that. It was my duty, my obligation. I'm her dad, I love her. It was my delight, my joy. How do you think of other people in the room when you are aware they have weaknesses and you're gonna need to carry them? Are you thinking lovingly? Are you aware that this is a family? Do you think of them and say, you know what, I'm gonna prepare for that. I'm not gonna like begrudge the fact that I've gotta carry somebody else. No, they're weak and I get to carry them. That's my privilege because we're going up the hill together. We're, we're going to this vista together. We wanna to see great things. We wanna see God's greatness together. Now, I wanna ask you a question, but I do not want you to raise your hands this time. Sometimes have you raise your hands. You know, are you aware of a brother or sister here in the church or in your small group that you are stronger than? Are you aware of somebody weaker than you? Maybe it's a different way of asking that. Wait, or maybe another way of asking that, and please keep that to yourself, is do you get frustrated? Who of you here gets frustrated? Don't raise your hand. Who gets frustrated with someone else here? Anybody get frustrated with anybody else here? Because they're weaker than you. They're not as strong as you. They don't have as much understanding as you. Whoever that person or people are, you have an obligation to them, and your obligation is to bear with not just their weaknesses, but look down in your Bibles there. Look, how, look at how he words it. In the ESV, he says, we have a strong obligation to bear with what? The, the what of the weak. You say it out loud. Failings. Ouch. It's not just bearing with the weak because they're weak, but it's saying they're going to fail, and we actually have to bear with, carry those failings. On ourselves, bear their failings. Bear with the failings of the weak. People who are strong use their strength to the good of those who are weak to build them up. But you have to say, okay, well, wait a minute. Who are the strong and the weak they're talking about here? Paul seems to be changing the way he's been talking about strong and weak a little bit here. He's not just talking about strong and weak in conscience like he's been talking about. I think that applies here still in context. It still applies. He's talking about strong and weak. But I think he's talking about something else here. Because he's using some words that we've seen elsewhere in Romans before, all grouped together. He talks about hope. He talks about being weak. He talks about being strong. And you know, the other place that we saw that was back in Romans 4. I want you to flip back in your Bibles, Romans 4. We have it on the overheads here for you if you, if you don't have it. You see, in our passage in Romans 16, he talks about how we have hope from Scriptures. And that the, the, the stronger to bear with the weak... And we see those same kind of word clusters earlier in Romans. It's, it's talking about the faith of Abraham. And it says, in hope he believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations, as he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken. This word weak, talking about weak there. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old. We consider the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver. So weakness is wavering concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So we see hope and weakness and 
faith and strength and giving glory to God. All those same words. And so Paul actually, he's, he's drawing our attention back to that. If you're reading through Romans, you would catch that in one sitting. You'd catch, oh, wait a minute. I just read that earlier, about an hour or two ago, that he was talking about these same ideas. So Paul means here, I, I believe he means here, not only is he talking about weak in conscience and, and strong in conscience, meaning that strong believing that all things are free in Christ Jesus, weak meaning that, that we, we have to do certain things to be more acceptable to God. But he's also talking about those who are just weak in faith, meaning those who are waver. Those who waver. You ever waver? You ever waver in your faith? Man, I do. I did this week. I did this morning. Those who waver. Those who were weak. Those who are tempted to distrust the promises of God. That's who's weak. And you know what? All of us at some point can be weak. And all of us sometimes can can be strong. And who are those who are strong in the faith? It's those who trust in the promises of God, who rest in his promises, and then obey him in response, follow God in response, fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. Maybe you find yourself this morning here that you are fully convinced, you are in faith, that God can do what he's promised. If so, you need to help someone who's weak. Because I guarantee that somebody else here is weak in the faith. I guarantee that. It's not just people talking about conscience issues, but this is also just weakness of faith. And you know, week by week, day by day, I could be really strong in one moment in the faith and then just weak in the next. I can be doing great and then I hear bad news and then I'm doing weak. You know why? Because I'm tempted to look at circumstances and instead of looking at God's promises and the fact that God is faithful to do what he says and he will do those things. Abraham was strong in the faith. He didn't waver, didn't weaken, completely trusted God's promises. The one who's weak struggles and asks, is God good enough? Is God's word true? Can I believe him? Can I trust in him? You know, I've been weak in faith at times. Struggling to believe that God can really do what he says. And you know what you do when you're weak in faith? Or at least you know what most people do? They try to make up for it. Either by performance or by trying to have be stricter in conscience. I, I love the quote by a guy named David Helm talking about this passage. He says, so the weak in faith at some point do one of two things. They either bring something by way of conduct to shore up their relationship. So if you're weak in faith, I'm not sure God's going to do what he said he's going to do. What do we do? We, we, try to, we try to shore up our confidence by, by bringing something in the way of our conduct to the table. He says, to shore up the relationship that will make up in their mind for their disbelief in his promises. He says, or they avoid things by way of their conscience. And that's what we do when we're weak at times. In light of that, though, I think, I think both of, all of us are both strong and weak at times. And we need to carry each other in the promises of God. We need to say, I, you know what? I've got strength in my faith. Hold on to my faith. I'll carry the weaknesses of your faith. I'll be strong for you when your strength fails. I'll give my time and my strength so you can make up the mountain. It's difficult, isn't it? Who here do you know that you need to be strong for? That you need to carry them up the mountain when their faith is weak? Who here of you are weak and need to say, I I need to be strong in faith. It's not my conduct, it's not my circumstances that need to change. It's my faith that I need to grow in. When Paul, Paul's talking about 
bearing with the failings of the weak. He's not stopped there. He, he says, bear with their failings, not to please ourselves, but to please them. Look in, look in verse 2. He writes, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's not just limited to strong and weak. He's including the whole church now. He says, let each of us please our neighbor to build him up for their good. It's not fearing man. It's not saying man pleasing in the sense that I want to do things so that they like me. No, that's not actually for their good. It's not for your good or their good. It's not endorsing laziness in other people. He's not talking about bearing with other people because it's easier than correction. He's not talking about ignoring other people's faults or failings because it's easier than doing something about it or helping them in their failings. It doesn't mean we endorse or enable or allow sin and please others in that way. He's not talking about that kind of pleasing others. He's, he's talking about Pleasing our neighbors for their good. You know, we all know that it's not good to give our children everything they want all the time. Or at least most of us know that. <laughs> Experientially, growing up, I wanted things. I don't know if you ever, ever saw, there was a, an old movie called What About Bob? And there was a scene when he shows up at Dr. Marvin's vacation. And he shows up and he comes up to him and Dr. Marvin says, no, Bob, go home. I'll meet with you after my vacation. And he goes, no, I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. He's not, he's not talking about giving people everything that they want. That's not what's best for them. He's not, you know, as a, as a child, my parents, thankfully, did not let me get away with getting everything that I wanted. I would be a total train. We think I'm bad now. Man, could you imagine if I didn't get disciplined all the time, by the way? Maybe a little much, but, you know, all the time. And it, it was for my good because I, I didn't need to live as if the world revolved around me. I didn't need to always get what I wanted. What I, what I needed was for my own good. I was born with a self-centered, selfish heart. And so pleasing our neighbor for our good doesn't mean always giving them what they want, but it means, okay, what would actually build them up in Christ? Am I seeking their good? Are you seeking the good of your neighbor here to build them up in Christ? Are you thinking about strategically, hey, what is really good for them? I don't know best. What does Scripture say is good for them? You know, what kind of restraint in my behavior would help them? What kind of proactive actions in my behavior would do them good? You know, maybe it is with somebody who's got a weaker conscience. Is, is there somebody here who, you know, you think, okay, wait a minute, they're, they're prone. They, they come from an alcoholic background. They're prone to excessive drinking, so maybe I shouldn't drink around them. Or, you know what, uh, maybe, wait, maybe my, my fellow believer here is lacking faith, and I need to be strong for them and encourage them in the faith and point them back to Jesus. What can you do to help promote their growth in God and their enjoyment of God? What can you do to help them get to the place where they're going to see God, see his greatness, see his vistas? It looks like hard work. It looks like going from the head to the heart to the hands and feet. It's sacrificial living. It's others-focused living. It's a kind of loving living that doesn't seek its own. But you think, well, what, wait a minute. Well, how, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, Paul gives us a motivation. He gives us really the, the best motivation ever. He gives us the greatest, the best motivation in life. When you see that in verse 3 and 4, you see, we see that we have the best motivation for living others-focused lives, for, for living out our obligations. We have the best motivation, is what Paul tells us. He says, for, for this reason, because, look down at verse 3, Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus did not live for himself. Think about that for a moment, though. Paul, he words it in a very specific way. He says, for Christ, even Christ, Christ did not please himself. Why does he word it that way? He could have said Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, but he says Christ. He uses a title because he wants us to see that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the anointed one of God, he didn't live for himself. The king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who deserved all glory and honor and praise and majesty, who deserved all people to live for him when he got here. It says he didn't live for himself. You know, the example of other people motivates us. We, we can understand that on a human level. You know, there's a story a while back, I think it was called Hacksaw Ridge. It was a movie written about a guy named Desmond Doss and he was a conscientious objector. He believed that, that Christians were not allowed to kill other people in war. And so he did not ever carry a rifle. And he was a medic in World War II. And they mocked him constantly. They gave him a hard time. His superiors gave him a hard time. His fellow soldiers belittled him. And they got to the place one day when they were pinned down. They had scaled this cliff and they were about to go up and over. And yet there was this hail of machine gun fire. It was mowing everybody down. And they were trapped on this cliff in this little shelter area. They could neither get down and they couldn't go up. And they were pinned. And so under a barrage of gunfire and explosions, Desmond Doss, he, he crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier, and he dragged severely injured men to the edge of the ridge. He tied a rope around the bodies, and he personally lowered. I don't know if you've ever done that, by the way. In the movies, you have people lower people down. It's not easy. He did that for over 75 men. I'm guessing his hands probably felt like they were going to fall off, including his captain, Jack Glover, in a 12-hour period, and the same soldiers who who had shamed him, they praised him. His captain said he was one of the bravest persons alive. And then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing because the captain had given him such grief. You know, think of my own mother in little ways. You, you can see, be motivated by the people in, in lots of ways. We can be motivated by a story like that. We can be motivated by our own moms, you know. As it comes up to Thanksgiving, I can remember many Thanksgivings where my mom would, we would have tons of people over at our family. We have tons of people over at our house for Thanksgiving to be, Full, like 30 people, 40 people in our house would be very common. My mom would make pies or desserts and things like that. And she'd look around and she realized, okay, there's not enough dessert for everybody. And so she would, you know, give out the last piece to somebody else. Somebody say, well, don't, don't, don't you want it? And she goes, no, no, I'm full, I'm full. I, you know, I don't, I don't want that at all. We can see like in mothers, these little sacrifices that this motivation is saying, yeah, I want to I be selfless, even in small ways like that. There's so many ways you can see that. But the greatest way that we could see that was in Jesus. Because he really deserved it. He really deserved worship. He really deserved for the whole world to be focused on him and centered around him because he created the whole world. Jesus really is the center of the universe. That's our greatest motivation. He could have lived. Think about that. If Jesus came to earth and he, as soon as he got here, demanded that everybody praise him and worship him, it actually would have been good and right would have been just and good and everyone should have and if he demanded that everyone worship him and if they did not worship him they would all go to hell that would be right and good he would have been right to demand that everybody live for him and serve him 
he would have been right to demand that his disciples wash his feet instead of him washing his disciples' feet. But think about that. He was the only human who would have been completely sinless in living to please himself. Yet, what does it say? He took on the reproaches that people had against God on himself. He took reproach on himself. Why? For the glory of God. And Paul here, he's quoting it from Psalm 69 where David is a righteous sufferer and he is being attacked by his enemies and deserted by his friends. And it was really a prophetic psalm that looked forward to what Jesus endured. And, and, and he was harassed by his enemies and all his friends deserted him. And yet he was willing to bear the reproach out of a desire to please God, out of a desire to live for his courts, his house. Are we willing to live to bear the reproach of others for the sake of God's glory. Motivated by the fact that Jesus lived that way. Will we choose to honor God's name by living to please God, by bearing the reproach of others, and so communicate to the world that my Savior did this, and that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I'm motivated by the greatest sacrifice. I'm motivated by what Jesus did for me. And so now I'm going to bear the reproach of other people. And then Paul goes on, he says, you know, this passage, he's quoted Psalm 69. So in verse 4, he says, for what was written in former times, meaning that he says, you know, don't ignore the Old Testament here, uh, New, New Testament Christians. What was written in former times and former days is written for our instruction. All the Old Testament, it points forward to Jesus, to the New Testament. It points forward to the fact that it's written for our instruction, he says, that through endurance, seeing the example of endurance in Scripture, through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, seeing that all the Scriptures are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, we might have hope. That's what he says in verse 4. You know, it takes encouragement not to give up in the midst of life when you grow weary. You know, you ever grow weary in life? You ever feel like just quitting? We need the encouragement and endurance that God provides to us through scriptures. And just as an aside, Paul takes this little aside so we can take a little aside. If you are struggling with needing endurance and needing encouragement, needing hope, wonderful encouragement here from scripture is that we can look back and see how saints of old endured because God sustained them, how they had encouragement because God brought encouragement to them, but ultimately how really we may endure and have encouragement because all these things have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus and now we have hope. If you need to grow stronger in your faith, look at what was written in the former days for our instruction. Look to Scripture for encouragement, for hope. We can have encouragement knowing because we're completely free in Christ Jesus, we can give of ourselves freely in worship. We can have encouragement knowing as we rest in and rely on the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given to us. He's going to enable us to endure even when our strength is gone. That's what we can see in Scripture. That's what we see in Jesus. We can be sure we live that way. We're going to glorify God and we're going to be able to worship God. And, and he gives us really, the third thing he gives us in verses five to seven is he gives us this, this greatest aspiration. Not only do we have this strong obligation, not only do we have this, this greatest motivation, this best motivation, we have the greatest aspiration as well. How small is it if we just live for ourselves? I don't know about you, I don't, I don't want to live that way. Too often I live that way. It's like living a delusional life. 
But now great vistas are opened up for us that we don't have to live for ourselves. There's a whole other world out there. We get to live for something or for someone far greater than ourselves. Something far more meaningful. The glory of God, the fact that, that God wants to glorify himself by drawing people to him, that, that he can use us and will use us to worship him and to bring other people to worship him. And Paul knows that that kind of living is hard. So he's looking at verse five, he, he prays for us. He prays for the Roman church and secondhand in a way he prays for us. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Now, what does that endurance and encouragement come from? It comes from Scripture. He just told us that. It comes from Jesus and his motivation, his example. But look in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Wait a minute. So one of the ways that we worship God, one of these ways we glorify God is by living in harmony with one another. That's one of the ways that we get to bear the failings of the weak. We get to bear the weaknesses of each other. We do that because Jesus did that with us. And as we do that, we will live in harmony in a way that glorifies God, in a way that you could not glorify God otherwise. We have a great aspiration that can only be carried out if you are living in harmony and unity with your fellow brothers and sisters here in Christ Jesus. And don't let the little petty things and differences in life separate you don't let your different preferences your perspectives separate don't let them bring disunity don't let your desires your things that you're strong and that they're weak and the things that they're weak and you're strong and don't let those things divide may god grant you to live in such harmony so that you might glorify god you know he says in accord with christ jesus that means together with christ jesus now, for a second, you think about the word unity. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean even mean uh, that you're unanimous in our thoughts. But it's something that Jesus himself prayed for in John 17. It was his last day on earth. And think about that. If it was your last day, if you knew you only had 24 hours left to live, how would you live? What would you say? What would you do? Jesus, he knew where he would be 24 hours from from when he prayed, or actually probably shorter than that time frame, he knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what was going to transpire. And it was so important to him, though, that he prayed for the unity of the church, the unity of the body. And he says, I pray that, that they are one, as Father, as you and I are one, so that all men might know that they're my disciples. Unity of the church doesn't mean uniformity, but it it means a harmonious acceptance of each other in Christ in the midst of differences. There's a lot of differences here. We differ, and that's good. But harmony doesn't mean thinking the same thing the same way, but it does mean that we're called to have a common purpose, a shared attitude, a common perspective. And look at the purpose in verse 6. Look down your Bibles. He says in verse 6 that together, here's the purpose, the great aspiration. He says, that together you may with one voice glorify God. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you want to be said of your life? I hope it's what all of us should want, which is to live our lives as worship to God in response to all of his mercies. I want to point people to God, to his mercy. He says, you know, we, we, how do we do that? We, we do that by living together in unity, by bearing with each other's weaknesses, by... And that's the way that we actually will glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The living in harmony is the sharing the same devotion, unity we have in Jesus. That's the way that we worship God and glorify God. It's one of the primary ways. 
And he says, in accord with Jesus Christ, or together with Jesus Christ. And then he says something else that's interesting. He says, together with one voice. You see, before, there were walls of separation that had had torn us in two, that we were divided, we were separated, we were alienated from God, we were alienated from each other, but now he's brought us together so that now with together one voice, we can testify of God's unifying power and greatness to bring us together in him so that together with one voice, we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that happens on Sunday morning as we sing together, as we sang together this morning in worship. There's something miraculous that's happening. That's part of the reason why we gather together in corporate worship, why it's so important, so key to be here, is that actually it is a means that together with one voice, literally, we glorify God. We praise and worship God together. And that is a demonstration of the fact that we are together. We are actually declaring that together we worship God. You know what? Despite our differences, despite what we want, despite our preferences, we gather together to worship God. And we're going to be in unity, not around what we want, not around our preferences, not around style or anything else, not around what we like or dislike, not around what we think we need or don't need, but around Jesus Christ. And so, that we might with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us an even more grounds as he closes. Why? Why do we have this obligation? We have a motivation. We have great aspiration. Look in verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another. What's that attitude we're supposed to have in unity of bearing with? The attitude we're supposed to have as we bear up with the weaknesses of others, as we carry the weaknesses, carry their failings, as we help them in their weakness of faith, as we help each other. He says, therefore, welcome one another. That's the attitude we're having. You know, I didn't disdain the fact that Eva was on the hike with us. I I welcomed the fact that she was on the hike. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, think about the fact, if if you feel like you're strong and you're struggling with the fact that you have to help somebody weaker, think about the fact that none of us are strong in comparison to Christ. None of us are. You know, we compare ourselves with other people and we can think we're so much greater. The reality is, it's about like here and here for the people we think are really so much weaker than us and we're so much stronger. And yet, that's on the floor and God's greatness is in the heavens. There's just no comparison to our, our strength to God's strength, our weakness to God's strength. Jesus is the one who's ultimately strong, the ultimate strong man. He's the imminent strong one. All of us are comparably weak. Don't you want him to bear with you? The good news is he does. The good news is he has. The good news is it says, surely he has borne our weakness. He's borne our infirmities. He's borne our sorrows, our sickness, our, our sins on himself on the cross. He, 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 he physically bore. I, I, I love the, the bearing with language here because the ultimate bearer was Jesus who bore as he held out his arms and he bore our weaknesses. He bore our failings to the very end. He bore all of our failings due to our weakness and sin on his own body on the cross. And now he welcomes us in his, to his kingdom. And he says, come and enjoy all the rights and privileges of fellowship with me no matter how weak you are. It's not that Jesus is clueless about how much we fail and are weak. It's that he bears our weaknesses. He's borne our weaknesses. He's borne them all. 
And he shows that kind of welcome to us. And then he says, you know what? Now you get to show in a very small way, although it feels great to us, in a very small comparison, we get to show the welcome of Jesus so that others might know the welcome of Christ. So that others might be carried to the top and see the vistas of God's mercy. See the vistas of his greatness. See the the beauty and the majesty and the glory of his forgiveness. To see his love and his unending grace. To see his inheritance that he holds out for us. With our failings, even as believers, you might feel like Jesus is ashamed of us. You might feel that way this morning. Or that he's inclined to avoid us or not want to be around us. But it says, no, God's welcomed you. Jesus welcomed you. You don't bother or annoy God. That's astounding. I feel like I bother and annoy God sometimes. But it says, no, nothing could be further from the truth. He welcomes you in because of Jesus. And because he's welcomed us to come to him and be with him and enjoy his presence continually, he doesn't remind us of our failings. He doesn't want to abuse us. He doesn't tease us. He doesn't belittle us like maybe like friends or parents or authority figures may have done in your past. He welcomes us into his presence for our good. Why? To edify us, to build us up for our good. And he says, you know what? You have the privilege of being able to do the same thing. Just as Jesus welcomed us, continues to bear with our failings. He says, like you've been welcomed, help your neighbor know my welcome so that both of you might glorify God. Because after all, isn't that what we want to live for in light of his acceptance and his mercy? Let's bear with it. Let's get to it. Let's respond to him. Let's be motivated by him. And let's have a higher goal than pleasing ourselves. And let's live for God's glory because he's borne all of our failings. Amen? Well, let the band go ahead and come up and we will sing together. And as we sing, I want you to consciously think about the fact that we singing together with one voice, we're singing with people we might not even really like. Now that's not good, but people might annoy us. But you know what? What we're testifying the fact is that Jesus is greater than all those things. And he, is, he has died to break down the things that used to separate us. And so then we can then, as we're singing, confess, God, would you forgive me for begrudging those differences? Would you forgive me for being aware of those differences? Lord, would you let me let go of holding my preferences strongly? Lord, would you help me let go of those areas where I have bemoaned the fact and say, I guess I'll forgive you or I'll guess I'll carry your weakness? And would you say, God, would you help me lovingly remember this is my family, for good or for worse, and that, Lord, I want to I help me carry the weaknesses of my family because you've carried me. Amen? Well, let's stand and sing together.